this is the Sunday Sound of Dhamma program. And uh, what I'd like to do is just begin with a short, maybe 10 minute or so guided meditation. So that we can come and be present for what's in our bodies and minds right here, right now. And I'll offer about half an hour or so of Dhamma talk, and then we'll have a bit of time for questions or reflections or anything you want to share. might begin by settling into your meditation posture. I like to start with a bit of movement, just loosening up the neck and the spine. Knowing that the bones are carrying the weight of the body. Perhaps the muscles can relax and widen and soften. And establishing the intention of metta. May all beings be well.
allowing that intention to fill the whole mind. May all beings be well.
So these days I'm living in London while I do my studies of Buddhist art history and Buddhist heritage. And one of the things that I notice being here in this place, being in a big city again, or the first time in a, in a while, uh, is the incredible breadth of human intention, the incredible force, the strength of human endeavor. The world is full of all kinds of agendas for better or for worse. And for me, in some ways, it also brings to mind the, the difference that even one person can make. You know, I spend a lot of time in the museum these days. <laughs> and you can see wonderful works of art by folks that we don't even know who they were. Or you can um, imagine, you know, when I was a chaplain, I used to carry a little book of Rumi, the Sufi poet, because his words were so meaningful. So many people found deep resonance, deep meaning in his words. Recently, we had a lecture uh, on Friday night, actually, by a gentleman who is part of the Dongwang Academy. They are a group of uh, people who are caring for the cave temples in the, the western part of China. Hundreds and hundreds of temples that were carved into the rock by hand and hand painted by people 
with all sorts of beautiful images of the stories from the suttas and from the sutras, from both the Pali suttas and the Mahayana sutras. And the gentleman was telling us, Dr. Dr. Sue, he was telling us that about two and a half million people visit those caves every year now. More than a thousand years after those paintings were created. Why? Because they find it inspiring, because they find they're curious, they're uplifted, they want to know what would, what is it that those folks left behind for us? So the point is that what you do makes a difference. What you choose to do, the way that you act with intention makes a difference. That's one of the key teachings of the Dhamma, that intentional action does have an effect in the world. It has an effect on us and on the world that we live in. In fact, I would say that the Buddha went so far as to say that we can't even begin to develop right view, an appropriate, um, an appropriate perspective on our experience and on the world without the basis, without that as a basis, without the fundamental understanding that what we do matters. And to be clear, I'm not talking about control, because I think that that is actually sometimes where that understanding can lead to an effort at control, which is inevitably delusion. We can have an impact, but we cannot have control most of the time. And that fact can be, I think, quite unsettling for folks. The idea that control, it's not about trying harder to have better control, actually. Even the path is very, it's very interesting to see that people can sometimes even turn this toward their minds and believe that the path is somehow going to give you ultimate control over your mind. Mm -hmm. 
But that I don't I don't believe that that's the claim. I think that that is the purpose. In fact, I would say that that could end up being another form of violence toward yourself. Hmm. Or toward the world. effort to control you know recently there's been a lot of talk at least in the united states apparently there's been a lot of talk about book banning and this is something that's happened in i would say most parts of the world at various points in time it's definitely a topic that's up for people and there was a study published a couple of months ago that of more than a thousand book bans that have occurred in the United States, more than 60% of them were initiated by just 11 people. Yeah, it's kind of funny, right? It's kind of outrageous to think that 11 people could have that kind of an effect on the intellectual and conceptual lives of a whole nation. So what's the counterbalance to that? What's the appropriate response to that? I mention that because I think that it starts to bring us into the question of what is the proper kind of effort? What is the wholesome effort? What is right effort? So speaking about another factor on the path, not just right view, but right effort. Because there has also been, even within Buddhist circles, even within Dharma circles, there have been people teaching that there is no volition there is no possibility for, for will or choice or intention. And I have to say, I think that's quite misguided. I don't think that you can put the, the Dhamma in the proper frame without understanding the role of intention. So I want to bring forth a sutta, as usual, I want to bring forth a sutta uh, about, uh, about this topic. And it's a, a sutta called the Atakari Sutta. Atakari Sutta is uh, Gudra Nikaya 6.38, so from chapter 6 of the Numbered Discourses, discourse number 38. And in the sutta, the Buddha is having a conversation with a Brahmin, with somebody from the religious and spiritual cast of uh, of India at that time. And uh, let me just have it here in front of me for a second. And um, the Brahmin comes and makes a statement to him. And he says, this is my understanding. 
nati atakaro nati parakaro. So the translation of that is, one doesn't act out of one's own intention or will, and neither does one act out of someone else's intention or will. So basically he's saying that there isn't, that we don't have the possibility of choice or of enacting our own intentions. And this is a view uh, most likely based on something like a kind of determinism, uh, a belief that we are so completely conditioned that there's no way for us to make a choice. Even certain scientists, I would say today, brain scientists would have, have made statements like this. And it's one of the cases in which the Buddha has an immediate response. He doesn't wait to deliver the conclusion at all. He says, may I never see or hear of anyone holding such a view. How on earth can someone who comes and goes of his own choice say such a thing? So right away, he's pointing at your own experience, as the Buddha always does. Right? Just look at your own experience. Do you have the option? Do you have the choice? Can you say you have, you can make an initiative, you can start something. I'm going to make lunch. Okay, great. And you do it or you don't do it. So he goes on and he, and he, then he, he asks various questions. Related to this, do we find beings who initiate activity? Well, yes, of course, we find that there are beings who initiate activity. Not even just human beings, right? Try telling your cat what to do. They get to choose too, right? And then he says, do you see that there is persistence? Do you see that there is exertion or like uh, energy, effort being made? Yes. And he says, okay, so then you can see that. You can see by the fact that there is activity, that people have choice. Because all of your life is effort. All of your life is energy. And you are directing it to some extent. And then things happen, right? Other conditions arise. And then you respond to those things. And so on and so on. And on it goes. 
And so I want to suggest that this is a place where we can see the wisdom of the middle way. So the Buddha defined the middle way, the path of the middle way, in various ways, in about three different ways. But one of them is this question of existence or non-existence. And I'm going to explain in a second how this is related. But just to say, the this definition of the middle way is the Buddha telling us, do not fall over to the side of affirming permanent existence or solidity of existence of things, and do not fall over to the side of non-existence, nihilism, the complete negation of the presence of things. But we have to, we're asked to hold this space, to abide in this space of understanding all things as being interdependent, as being in interrelationship. They are neither independent and solid and substantial, nor are they completely absent, but they are this process. And so our choices and our volition and our efforts are all happening within that. There is no question that that is true. So they are conditioned to some extent. But we do get to choose. And you can tell that we get to choose by the times when you choose something different than what you've done in the past. A beautiful, beautiful example of this is a person with a substance abuse problem. A person who has a dependency of some sort, some kind of substance, maybe alcoholism. And then at some point they realize, oh my gosh, this is harmful. This is not the way that I want to live my life. And they choose something different. And they clean up their lives. And that wouldn't be possible if it were strictly a matter of conditioning, right? If we were completely determined by the conditions that had already occurred, then that wouldn't be possible. You would always make the same choice. So who chooses? Well, again, just as there is contact or there is perception or there is consciousness without a solid, permanent, independent existence, there is also choice without a solid or permanent existence, independent existence. There is choice within set of conditions. And so coming back to right view and right effort then, so we have the ability to make a choice and we know that the choices that we make matter, 
And we know that our choices are having an impact, not a control, complete control, but certainly an impact on the world. And so then the question is, well, what's the skillful way forward? Right? What is the path? How is it to be on the path? On the path of intention. It calls to mind another sutta when, uh, that I hadn't actually planned to talk about, but, uh, but it calls to mind another sutta in which the Buddha is asked by uh, this kind of de demon being about what's the sweetest thing and how does one live a good life? How does one develop a life of wisdom? And the Buddha responds by saying, truth is the sweetest thing. And the way that we develop a good life is by aligning ourselves with truth. Not one truth, but many truths, right? The Buddha didn't speak about one truth. He spoke about many truths. And so this is how we bring our effort into alignment with the path. This is how we bring skillful choices so that our choices are not reinforcing some delusion about control or some delusion about helplessness. But knowing that we are beings that are integral to the Dhamma, that are expressions of the Dhamma, then we can look at our lives and see, oh, right. The most important effort is to actually be real about what's going on here. The more that we do that, the more that we are clear about that, the more that we are precise about that, the more that we are courageous about that, the more wisdom opens up. And this is why the book banning is a problem, right? Because finding out about truth doesn't happen because one person gets to say what truth is. That's not how it happens. Even the Buddha himself said, you don't have to believe me. It's much better actually if you find out for yourself. In fact, it's only possible if you find out for yourself.
So we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> and, uh, and that's okay because it's work that's possible. It's work that is right here. It is about, it is, uh, sometimes uh, we use this phrase, getting out of your own way. If you can get out of your own way, then you can be the way. You can see that you already are the way. That the way has never been anywhere else but right here. So I want to close with a quote from my teacher, my, my root teacher, Seke Haradaroshi. And... Uh, Because Roshi had many teachings about effort, but his teachings about effort, I, I often found them quite cryptic. So like when talking about what to do in meditation, you know, he would point at he would point at his zafu at his cushion and he would say, just warm the cushion. <laughs> just warm the cushion. Right? Talk about like letting go of thinking that you have control, right? And I think that was what that teaching was ultimately about. Or he would say, just be the thing itself. Ah, yes. Just be the thing itself. You are the way. You are the Dharma. Just be the thing itself. So the quote that I, I want to share from him is this. He says, the only thing we really need is diligence. Whoa, echoing the Buddha's last words. Huh? That's often how the Buddha's final words were translated. Uh, the Buddha's last words were, Vajadama Sankara Appamadena Sampadita. He said, Constructed things are going away or falling apart. So diligently fulfill the way. As in, there's no time to waste. So the so Harada Roshi says, the only thing we really need is diligence. Don't look for anything and don't throw anything away. Oh, very interesting. Mm -hmm. This don't look for anything, I think, again, is his way of pointing at. seeing what's actually here, 
rather than seeing what you're looking for. And don't throw anything away. All things are demonstrating the Dhamma. All things. And he closes with this gentle encouragement. It is enough just to endeavor. Just to make effort. It is enough. the effort to find the truths. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.